This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage and the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. Keep your coins protected with the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile Premier Coin Holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. Check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all the other coin collecting accessories at AmosAdvantage.com. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I am Jeff Stark. We have sort of a Coin World centric episode of the Coin World Podcast today where we look back on our own recent history with an interview with Beth Deicher, a former Coin World editor who has recently retired from the anti counterfeiting task force, though she hopes to remain involved in the hobby. We actually interviewed her about her work combating the deluge of counterfeits in a previous episode which uh, you should go back and, and look at it. It's called Many Months uh, Fake ago. It Till They Take It was yes. the name of the episode. So so go back and take a listen to that if you want to get a sense as to uh, some of Beth's post-Coin World work. And that is a good place to remind you that if you're enjoying what you're hearing, whether it's this one or previous episodes, to subscribe. So that makes us all warm and happy and fuzzy inside. We love that when you do that. That would make our holiday a season yeah that's our christmas present so just send us subscriptions and keep listening that's, free that's coins the best too, th- but no <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean feel free to send us free stuff but just listening and subscribing will, will make us uh, almost as happy in honor of this interview with beth and sort of we've been taking looks back at what's happened in what coin world was reporting and what was happening in the publications history every week yep. this absolutely. this week we go back to the december 11th 1984 issue. Why that year? Why that issue? Because that was the year Beth became editor. That was the CoinWorld's 25th year. Uh, Interestingly, we approach CoinWorld's 60th anniversary next year. So what was the big news that week, Chris? The story that was above the fold, December 11th, 1985, the headline reads, Mint sells nearly 1 million SBAs. SBA is short for Susan B. Anthony, the Susan B. Anthony dollar. Which was a, a much maligned, and, <laughs> much maligned, short-lived, not particularly popular dollar Pseudo coin that quarter. was introduced. People confused yeah. it. <laughs> well, you know what's funny? I uh, I forget if it actually made it into the article or not, but I wrote an article about Susan B. Anthony dollars. <laughs> this was like a year ago or something, and I shared the anecdote. And it's a good one. Back in the uh, the early mid '80s, my parents were living in New Orleans, and. Somehow they got suckered into going to a timeshare presentation and they were told, well, you'll get a gift certificate to this place and you'll get this and you'll get this and you'll get $30 or something. That's right. And if you call now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, You know, if if you're going to go buy a timeshare, I've got a bridge to sell you. But anyway, so my parents go to this. uh, This is probably like 1983 or 1984 or something. My parents go to this presentation and they sit there and, you know, like they – they give you the pitch for like an hour or two, and then then they have the next person that gives you the next pitch, and you end up sitting there forever. So my parents finally waste an entire – I think they did it on like a weekend, like a Saturday or something. They wasted like half a day, if not more, on this stupid presentation. Then at the end, they were handed 30 Susan B. Anthony dollars. They weren't given cash or given a check. They were given well, Susan B. Anthony dollars. Money. That, it is cash. It's just – Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. It is. It is. It was just funny that you – know, it, 
They didn't get handed a 20 to 10 it's, or anything. It's, it's like so, the episode of The Simpsons where I think Lisa takes a Sacagawea dollar and says – or Bart comes and says, can I trade this in for real money? <laughs> exactly. The Hey, the, we've talked about it on the podcast before. The, the the Mint has been trying to phase out the $1 bill with a $1 coin forever and they haven't quite well, managed to do Well, not forever. Yet. For 40 so, years. That's not forever. Well, so, that yeah. I'm, they've, they've only been doing that as long as I've been alive. So don't uh, – <clears throat> Don't, don't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hadn't that, thought of it like that's, that. That's your um, little bonus trivia. We're going to have real trivia later, but yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. But so, so what was funny though is that my dad, uh, my dad put him into a little box and held on to him for like, you know, they were all dated. I think they're all 1979. So, you know, he held on to him for like 30, almost going on 40 years now. And he was convinced that they were going to appreciate uh, in value. And then, you know, years and years ago when I got into collecting, he goes, oh, man, are my Susan B's worth Yeah, but anything? are they narrow rim like, or wide rim? Near date, far date. Uh, I think uh, whichever one of those is the more common one, I think all of them of are. I don't know that my dad's luck in that regard was that good. But anyway, that's if, my fun little SBA. That's my fun little Susan B at the end. If only he had taken that, that $30 and invested it in, like, Apple or something. <laughs> yeah, well, hey, he's got an old uh, – either the first or second Mac ever made from 1985 and he booted it up like a couple of years ago we were digging through stuff and he booted up and it still works wow, which is amazing. Sell that so, sell that thing. anyway that's that's got to be got to be worth it's, something it's, some, it's some you know tech it's basically it's an collectors. antique at this point well, yeah exactly so, so that was all the news though. That, the, the, the mint was selling Susan B Anthony dollars there was the mint was selling Susan B Anthony's what's really interesting though is that they got it's the number of orders that to me is really staggering. So first of all, that demonstrates that the Mint had a whole bunch of extra Susan B. Anthony's lying nobody around wanted because them. they weren't all that popular. And they were all – and also it, it says here they were selling 1979 and 1980 sets. The coins were obviously issued from 79 to 81 and then one sort of last gasp in 1999 before the Sacagawea was introduced. But what's really interesting is – Apparently, as of November 22nd, 1985, 50,710 of the uh, the six-coin set, Philadelphia, Denver, San Francisco. For, for the, the two years. The three right. mints. So and, two years, three mints. Yeah, year, exactly. Yeah. That's six coins. Exactly. 1979 So the, the, math, the math tells me so, that's more than 300,000 coins than dollars that were sold in just those sets. Yeah, and apparently a, a, at least a few of those sales had occurred in 1985, which is why I guess CoinWorld felt compelled to comment on it. And I guess the mint was getting ready to sell some more. So – Late 1985, I guess they were uh, trying to – the Mint was trying to sell more Susan B's. I guess the market might have picked up just favorite, a tiny little bit My favorite part of that is that you could buy a 2,000-coin bag for $2,050 and 100 yeah. for a – for 110 2000 for $2,050. That's basically like face value and shipping and a little bit. And they sold a lot of them. So that, that was crazy. But the thing that caught my eye in that issue was yeah. the announcement. Cause you know, this is something that Beth Deicher inaugurated after she took over for Margot Russell was the beginning of the Margot Russell internship program here at CoinWorld which they began accepting applicants for the 1986 summer. That is a program that I actually took advantage of in summer of 2003. That's what brought me here to CoinWorld. I had read CoinWorld on and off at the library or had a subscription when I was young. Around the time the 1995 double die cent craze was going on, and then later as the state quarter program rolled out, and I was reading these stories by Paul Jokes and Beth Deicher and and Michelle Orzano, and and you know these 
these I saw these names, but I, I didn't know these people. And I that was my only gateway to the hobby. I wasn't part of a coin club then, didn't have the support, you know, didn't get to go to the shows and, and, and the A and A and all that stuff. So everything I learned in the beginning was through Coin World. And I saw that they were doing this internship and it paid money. Imagine that an internship that actually pays money. They don't do that anymore. Practically. That is, the, that is a foreign concept. So uh, I thought, you know, I have no idea where Sydney, Ohio is. Uh, I have to look it up on a map, small town, north of Dayton, West central Ohio, but okay. You know, it's coins. I know about coins. It's journalism. That's what I've done since I was in third grade. Let me try this. And who knows, you know, it's, it's uh, go and it's 10 weeks. I'm graduating college before this. So I don't need the internship to, you know, in that regard, but it pays and it's something I know a little bit about. So let me go do it. And I did that. And after the 10 weeks, they're like, gosh, we want to hire you. We got to wait till next year. Long story short, this February will be 16 years. So that's all thanks to the Coin World yeah. internship that was first announced this week in 1985. What I would really love to know about would be third grade Jeff Stark's journalism career. <laughs> I, I, well, I have to know. So, to know so how you got your I, start, uh, man. I took <laughs> articles from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and cut them out and pasted them onto eight and a half by 11 paper and, you know, had little, you know, it was like a class newspaper and the good journalists localizing things. I, I left a room for a story in there for, um, you know, something classroom related or kid related. I, thankfully, huh. those don't exist to my knowledge at all anywhere. These, this national effort at journalism, which was more See that 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 makes me sad though because when it comes time to pen Jeff Stark's oh, biography, yeah, <laughs> your your biographer is gonna uh, want to have access to those and and apparently they're they're lost I, to history. So my, that that's that's a bummer. That's my, a bummer for me. My at least. biography is one best left untold, perhaps. But, but. <laughs> oh, I I disagree with that. I think that the life and times of Jeff Stark, World Coin Guy, would be it would top oh, the bestseller yeah. list, man. Well, I, topping I think, I think the we bestseller list is the Red Book, <laughs> and I I just have ah. a copy of the Red Book, the 2020 Red Book that arrived on my desk this week. Today, as this is being recorded, and I'm going to pull something from this week in history. We did Coin World history. Now we're doing history at large, writ large. For it was December 17th, 17. 1992. That is the date given for the striking of the 1792 Silver Center since the first coins that were actually struck at the Philadelphia Mint. This was the proposed coinage. According to the 2020 Red Book, Washington, General President Washington, is believed to have expressed disapproval of the use of his portrait on American coins. So the use of emblematic use of liberty was believed more appropriate. Robert Birch, the engraver, was employed to design proposed design for these coins. He, uh, perhaps with others, engraved the dies for the, I've heard it pronounced Dismi and Deem, and half Deem and Dismi, uh, D-I-S-M-E. You see that? Yeah, well, I'd actually love it if a reader could clarify that for us. The, the, all be curious the, that know. was happening this week in numismatic history back in 1792. Uh, cool. the, the date given for the striking of the Silver Center since the guy who did the designs for those also did the designs for this other coinage, the Disney or Deem. So that's kind of fun, U.S.-based uh, numismatic history. I suppose now is as good a time as any 
for us to follow up to last week's episode. We talked a lot about Morgan Dollars. That was because of your interview with Leroy Van Allen, uh, mm -hmm. the combo uh, Van Allen Malice from the VAM uh, varieties. And the, the question last week was, five silver dollars appear on what U.S. paper money? So the tie-in is, these dollars that appear on this paper money that we're asking about are Morgan Dollars. And Morgan Dollars, much beloved, and the subject of you know the interview and, and lots of the show last week. So what note is this that has five Morgan Dollars displayed on the back of the note? Do you fancy a guess? It's a $5 national no. bank note from <laughs> series 1882? No. Two? So... You're close, Damn. sort of. It is the Series 1886 $5 silver certificate. Absolutely beautiful ah. note. Yes, One of those, I mean, you know, so it's got a couple touch points. It's it's a $5, not a one, so it's a little higher denomination. It's a silver certificate, redeemable in silver. While, you know, $1 today seems like nothing, and $5 almost seems like nothing, uh, $1 was a lot, but 5 was an enormous amount. So, you know, there were more dollars in use then, right? Then the $5 note. So it's, it's a higher denomination than, than maybe what you would encounter. It's a silver certificate. It has this great design. Gosh, it's a great note. I wish I could afford one. So that is the trivia for last week. Interestingly, $5, just calculating for inflation, not buying power, not any of the other metrics by which a currency's value is gauged, but just in terms of inflation, $5 in 1886 would be $136.81 today, according to an inflation calculator that okay, I just plugged cool. it into. So that is the equivalent of a $136.81 bill. So at least according, can, at least by can you make in terms change of inflation. Can, I, I've got a $136 bill in my pocket. And, <laughs> and by by that math... <laughs> so, 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 that'd be such a cumbersome denomination. By that math, well then... But anyway, by that it, math, that is the $1 is uh, worth about 27 right? Because 27 times 5 is 135 that So $27, the one... Be... So yeah, you got it. $1 in 1886 was 20 is equivalent of $27 and so, 36 so cents. Uh, now this week, the trivia question, we're just going from out from left field. It's not related to anything else. I just saw it and it seemed fun. It's Canadian. It's a novice level question. I think everybody can get it, but I'm going to add a twist to it. So the question is name the denomination of Canadian coin with a Royal Canadian mounted policeman in 1973. Now, the trivia answer hmm. just lists one denomination, but there's actually a second denomination of Canadian coin that year that celebrates the theme. And so the, the spin to this that I'm adding is, okay, what are the two denominations basically? Because specifically the one shows the mounted policeman, the other has a design emblematic of the same theme. 1973, put your thinking caps on. That was uh, ubiquitous, easy to find, great classic designs, you know, just simple, classic, clean designs, Canadian coins. What is the denomination? And then the second part is the related denomination. So there's your trivia question for next week. Chime in on social media, share it with your friends and enemies. Now we're going to go to a lots of coin world related stuff, and I'm going to let you talk a little bit. Mm. Yeah, we're jumping back into, into coin world history with something that, Jeff, I'm sure you might even be more familiar than I now am with these. I did a little research on them this week. 
We're covering Coin World's uh, anniversary medal series. It's interesting. There's actually a letter to the editor in the uh, 1985 edition of Coin World that we read. It's a very brief letter. It just says, I've only just recently subscribed to Coin World. It's a wonderful weekly newspaper. Congrats on 25 years. Looking forward to 25 more which we ended up doing and then some because we're about to we're approaching 60. This Coin World medal series that I'm alluding to was a series of aluminum medals that were commissioned by Coin World. Uh, and they were struck between 1980 and 2000 and they were brought to the ANA, the American Numismatic Association's World's Fair of Money, and they were brought and then they were they were I sold believe they were out. distributed um, freely uh, if you came by the booth. Oh, they were oh they were free. Yeah, I believe, know that. believe so. Um, these aluminum medals that were distributed, are sort of advertising pieces by Coin World, and each year they would have the the Coin World logo, which up until fairly recently, last twenty or thirty years or so, was a globe. Interestingly, if you look at old editions of Coin World from back in the day, if you look up at the logo on the front page, you would see that the world's coin and world were actually separated by a globe, which makes a certain amount of sense because it's Coin World. It's so you have a, an image of the world. Though truthfully, I always thought that a better logo and the logo that we now have would incorporate a coin to some extent that you'd have some sort of coin. Well, yeah, the, the, the logo that the followed item. the globe logo is splits a coin in a globe. So and then that's well, been set aside uh, for I don't know, 10 or year, more years now. So these aluminum metals were struck with the old coin world logo, the globe on the obverse. And the reverse featured a reference to the ANA show, whichever anniversary it was. In 1985's medal, for example, it said 25th anniversary on it. 1987 said 27th anniversary. And they often so also, along with some imagery associated with whatever city that the ANA um, yes. convention and, was held. And they often would have a reference to the ANA's 87th annual show or whatever the number show was. So you had two anniversaries yes, being yes. Uh, celebrated together. And Coin World does still produce medals. Last year for the, uh, well, almost two years ago now, or I guess a year and a half, for the ANA show in Philadelphia in 2018, some medals featuring the Liberty Bell and, and other images associated with Philadelphia were struck. Or at least a few of them got put into third-party certification holders, which a really interested collector could probably go about finding. I know I have one, Jeff, that yeah, I think you actually yeah. gave me. But So Coin World continues to produce medals, but we're highlighting this particular medal series because it was struck between 1980 and 2000, which represented a big chunk of Beth Deicher's, not only her career overall, because she joined Coin World long before she became editor. For a couple of years. But she what? was on the uh, Sydney Daily News staff before that. Yeah. Oh, and Amos. I, I, I was conflating. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, actually. So, cause, so just to give the listeners a sense, Amos Media, the company that owns Coin World, as well as um, Lynn Stanley. Stamp News and the Scott Catalog, uh, which are uh, philatelic publications. The company also owned a number of uh, local newspapers time, in yeah. Western Ohio. Yeah, and among them was the Sydney <laughs> Daily News. Sydney being the town in Ohio that, where we call home. Um, Corn World is located in. As well, actually, interestingly, Sydney is also on the medals. The, the nineteen eighty to two thousand aluminum medals that we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, reference to the town. Um, yeah, they actually contain a reference and, to Sydney, Ohio, as well. Uh, so the Sydney Daily News was the local paper, and, uh, and Beth, as as you'll hear in the interview. Joined up with the Sydney Daily News staff initially yeah. as a reporter and, and, it's and, funny. and an editor before before then transferring over as Jeff just alluded to before transferring over to Coin World in the early 1980s and then becoming later, editor yeah. in 1985. And, and the the metal series is interesting because they're anodized aluminum, so they're different colors. Most of them, some are just your generic, you know, yep. aluminum looking white metal type look. I think the most interesting attempt. It's hard to tell the design. 
but uh, some of the designs are great. Cincinnati has a reference to baseball because of Cincinnati's history as the first professional mm-hmm. baseball team, 1869. But the one for Detroit is black and ridged like a record because of Motown. So it was a really fun, <laughs> yeah, quirky great. sort of effort at tying into the local history of things. There's a neat series. I have a bunch of them, a couple of each, most of them. So that way you can just, you know, have obverse and reverse displayed next to each other. I encounter them in junk boxes and see them on eBay. And actually when I was newer to coin world, I found at my desk, like, a horde of several hundred of like three different years. They've since been turned over to the um, coin world archivist. They're fun little medals. They celebrate coin world history. So without further ado, please enjoy the interview that we conducted with Beth talking to her about a long career in publishing and specifically numismatic publishing and uh, some of her reflections on uh, her experiences at coin world. So please enjoy the interview. We are fortunate to be joined today with Beth Deicher, who was editor of CoinWorld for 27 years and has served in several capacities in retirement, authoring several books and working on anti-counterfeiting. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. We want to talk about your career in publishing because you're somebody who really used the platform that CoinWorld had as an advocate for the hobby. You broke ground in your journalism career. Let's go back to the 1960s. You were a college student in North Carolina, correct? Correct. I graduated from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. You went into journalism, but women weren't allowed into journalism at that time, correct? Uh, Yes. I had wanted to go to the journalism school at UNC at Chapel Hill, but women were not allowed to enter as freshmen, so I had a scholarship at the University at Greensboro which my freshman year was the first year that men were admitted to UNC Greensboro. So it had been the woman's college of the University of North Carolina, and they did not have a journalism major, but I earned a Bachelor of Arts in British literature and American literature and had a minor in photography it's kind of interesting. I have a minor in physics because the photography was through the study of light. So <laughs> the next best thing for me was working on the college newspaper, the Carolinian. And I, the first week I was on campus, I went over and volunteered and wanted to work on, it was a twice weekly publication. And so by my junior year, I was managing editor of that publication, and we were published in Chapel Hill and got to know the dean of school of journalism in Chapel Hill. And from that, I did an internship in Norfolk, Virginia with the Virginia Pilot Ledger Star and was overseas for a while after college. And when I came back, was lucky enough to land a job there in Norfolk. That was with the Virginia Education Association? No, I was with the Virginia Pilot Ledger Star, and most of my work was with the Ledger Star, the afternoon paper. I worked there for four years and then was recruited by the Virginia Education Association. Mixed the timing up. (laughs) And did their publications. And also, because it's headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, and it's a statewide organization, we followed legislation that pertained to education, and I started a, a news service for education legislation while I was there. So I reported on the Virginia General Assembly 
on a daily basis for four years. And then that paved the way for your transition to Ohio, where you came to a little town called Sydney. <laughs> Actually, there was a guy who graduated from Ohio State University. That, that you met through that, IFI. That I met through an organization that uh, we had gone overseas with. Both Art and I were IFIs at different times in different countries. I was in Iran in 1968, and he was in the United Kingdom in 1971. But we married in December of 76 and came to Ohio, and my first job in Ohio was with the Sydney Daily News. <laughs> which then led into, which was owned by us here at Amos Press. That's right, at the time. Uh, <laughs> and you had a very memorable, auspicious start to that career. And after three or four years, then they pulled you over, recruited you to CoinWorld. I remember it very well because I was working with the Daily Paper and Margot Russell, who was editor of CoinWorld, worked just down the hall. And uh, she came over one morning and we were on deadline asking me if I would like to go to lunch. And I said, sure, after I get off deadline at 12.30. And so during that lunch, she said, we're going to have an opening at CoinWorld. Would you like to come to work with us? And I remember telling her, Margo, I don't know anything about coins except how to spend them. <laughs> and she laughed and she said, I can teach you the numismatic side. Uh, I want you for your newsroom management. At the time, I was the news editor of the daily afternoon paper here in Sydney. I was not unknowledgeable about coins. Growing up, my aunt, who had been the postmistress and owner of a general store, was a coin collector. And each of her nieces and nephews through the years would work for them. You had to be 15 to start. And we would stock shelves in pump gas and do things around the country store. And when we closed up at night, we would sort through the change. And she always had Whitman folders. So I filled many Whitman folders with Lincoln cents and Indian head cents and dimes and nickels and quarters and half dollars. It wasn't my money, but I knew what coin collecting was about. I certainly wasn't a dive variety specialist or anything, but I knew about dates and mint marks. So from there, Margot convinced me to, to come over and work with CoinWorld. And my education for the next four years was every Friday afternoon. At that time, the publication went to press on Friday afternoon. We would usually have two or three hours, and I would spend it with Margot and she would assign me one or two books a week to read, and then we would discuss them. Every third week, every third Friday, we would discuss the books and things that I had read, and then I began traveling with Margot to meet the researchers and writers who had written the books. And so that was how I learned about numismatics and then meeting the people in the hobby. Oh, that's a fascinating and very thorough education. What differences from an editorial and even thematic standpoint did you notice and do you continue to notice between numismatic journalism and sort of quote-unquote conventional journalism, what you know most people would recognize to be sort of day-to-day -day news reporting? Actually, the fundamentals are the same. Numismatics is certainly a specialized area, and one of the difficulties for me right away was the nomenclature. It's a specialized vocabulary, and I look back and think one of my 
contributions, or I'd like to think one of my early contributions to CoinWorld was developing a style book, a consistent way of describing. I was used to the Associated Press style book, and we used that same basis for news writing, but we had to consistently categorize terminology in numismatics, and that took us about a year to develop that, but later on, the hobby followed us in One of my difficulties was in editing copy here, I would have one writer say, seated liberty, and another one say, uh, liberty seated. Well, which is it? Let's call it the same way each time to be consistent, not only for long-time readers, but for beginners to consistently describe and use the language of numismatics correctly and so that people can communicate better. So that was one of my first projects. It was a learning experience, but also I think it made CoinWorld better. One of the the things also I think that was fundamental to journalism in general, some uh, publications did not do it, but one of the things that I initiated right away was if we had an error in a story of published information that was factually incorrect. If we learned that it was incorrect or we made an error, we instituted a corrections copy uh, within, noting that there had been an error in an earlier story. Lord knows I fill out a couple of those in my time. (laughs) Guilty as charged. (laughs) And that, to me, I think is fundamental in communications. The numismatic side is the specialty of it. The fundamentals of good writing, honest reporting, and the subject area that you cover are basically you take the same principles but apply them in a specialized area. That was the way I approached it. You mentioned advocating. I've always been a believer in the First Amendment and very much the power of the editorial voice. I never hesitated to attack or write about a subject in the editorial column and realizing not everybody had the same view, and we welcomed. I have always felt that the editorial page is a place to debate ideas, and we welcome that, and I think our our surveys proved throughout the years that that was probably one of the most widely read pages in our publication, and I always felt good about that. I thought that served a great purpose for the hobby. Well, I remember reading editor's columns when I first subscribed to CoinWorld many years ago, so I can certainly say that I appreciate it. You know, at least the four. that many years ago. <laughs> I guess it's all relative. <laughs> I think I must have subscribed right around 2010. <laughs> and and, and my, my introduction to CoinWorld was circa 1995 and the um, double die Lincoln Sun. So, <laughs> well, later the uh, state quarters. So we, it's we, all... we, we all come in at different times. I do wonder, talking about your career and its sort of spread from the 1960s to the present, an issue that I think at least some people in numismatics are thinking about and and out in the workforce more broadly, especially in the last few years, are the barriers that you broke and that you broke through both in, in college and then going through all these different professional fields. I have to imagine that you confronted barriers and adversity that a lot of, you know, a lot of people irrespective of their gender, but women especially, might not confront today or might confront in a different form. 
How has workplace culture and the culture of journalism and numismatic journalism changed? And what were your experiences with that change? Well, early in my career, when I started in daily newspapers, women were usually in the women's section or the features section. And in fact, that's where I started, where I interned, but was lucky enough to do general reporting and later on work on the copy desk, which I was the only woman on the copy desk when I worked there. And that gave me a good basis for editorship later on. It was definitely experience that I wanted. In numismatics, it is certainly no secret that it has run about 90% male. Sometimes it would creep up in our surveys to 92, 93% male. It was very interesting to me that Margot had successfully edited the major publication being a female, and I think she paved the way in, in the numismatic field for women to be accepted. And at one time, the editors of Coin World and in, in the A&A's major publication, the Numismatist, and uh, several other publications were all women. There, I remember going to a conference in Mexico City where the U.S. Mint director was female, the Mexican director was female, and the Canadian Mint director were female, and the publications covering that were all female editors, and we looked around and wondered about this. But what I have generally found in numismatics is they respect your knowledge and ability. Gender has not been as much a factor in numismatics as the general scene in publishing elsewhere. And I I found those doors open. As I say, I think Margot Russell paved the way in our specialized field. But I also know that through the years, it has really depended on your knowledge and your interest and your ability to work with people more so than gender. Interesting. In, in such a male-dominated industry, just based on, on yes. the numbers and the statistics, it's interesting that there was a lesser degree or that, that gender was not as as important or didn't have as great an effect in that professional space. Why do you think that is? Again, I come back to the knowledge and the ability to work with people. I think those, especially in my generation of journalists, uh, I have friends and colleagues that I work with in different places, especially in Virginia, that went on to break barriers. I think in certain respects, the glass ceiling was there to be broken. I don't know that it, the glass ceiling has disappeared in the corporate rooms, boardrooms, but I think certainly uh, middle management, the doors open much more in middle management than top management. And most of the time, editorships are middle management in corporations as opposed to top management. Right. So so that has opened that space up. Yes. Interesting. So your career, you mentioned Margot Russell. You became editor in 1985 Correct. When, when she retired and were there for 27 years to 2012. 
that sort of goes along with or that tracks some major changes in the industry. You have the advent of third-party grading not long after. You have the bubble in 88-89. You have the development of a state quarter program in the 90s. And you were at the helm to see a lot of this. What was the, I guess, the most fun aspect to cover and what was the most challenging aspect to cover as the hobby changed through your time? Certainly the thing that really was fun for me was advocating for a change in designs. We felt that more people would become interested in coin collecting if we could get the public's attention on coins. All of the coins at the time, the circulating coins, uh, qualified for design change, and we started on that in the late 80s. 87, 89 was a period and I testified before Congress, and there was a change in leadership. The Republicans took over the House of Representatives, and there was a hearing. We were having terrific problems in the commemorative, the modern commemorative coin program. Once they started the practice of putting surcharges on coins, every organization saw the commemorative coin program as a cash cow. So we had tremendous proliferation and it was really affecting the hobby. And so I had been writing about these abuses, and it came to the attention of the committee in Congress that has oversight for the U.S. Mint. And so I was asked to testify, and they combined that with ideas for new coinage programs. And so I turned out to be the lead witness at that hearing that led into discussion of a circulating coinage program. And so we were able to kind of transition from abuses to what could open up the marketplace. And that hearing in 1995 led to the state quarter program. It was certainly uh, something that I felt was beneficial and probably marked a new era of coin collecting because of the tremendous effect that it brought the public into and knowledgeable about coins. Well, I can personally attest to that because in 1999 or 2000, my dad came home with the, the green folders for, for the uh, state quarter program. That was a seminal moment in my early life as a collector, and that's one of the things that got me into it. So that's sort of a direct connection. So that was 1995. The coins started coming out in 1999. 10-year mm -hmm. program, 2008, over. Then 2009, we have the uh, Territorials, D.C., and all that. Since then, the floodgate has been opened. Can we put the horse back in the barn? Is it a good thing or a bad thing that we want to get people's attention with new designs, and now there's so many designs from the last 20 years, almost every coin in your pocket, uh, at least you know, quarters and nickels and, and cents can have a different design, theoretically. Well, I think the idea has been overworked. I would like to see perhaps a new design that can stay on and not have like... Five a year. Five a year or whatever. <laughs> Certainly, there can be a different approach to the coins. It was an idea that we actually borrowed from Canada. Mm-hmm. And it worked here. I think it's really been redone too many times. We need to have a long, hard look, especially at the circulating coins, and maybe we can come up with new designs for all of the circulating coins and leave them on to have bring back some consistency 
within the circulating coins. There's certainly some things you can do within the commemoratives. And I, I noticed the Mint is beginning to think about experimenting a little more with the bullion coins. I think that some collectors have reservations about that kind of experimentation. I think that they fear, at least they've articulated a fear, about the U.S. bullion coins becoming the Canadian commemorative and bullion coins, which talk about a genie out of the bottle. Canada, yes. <laughs> Canada seems like it commemorates just about everything. But like you said, even in America, those kind of programs have also been overworked. And, and avoiding that might be valuable in the future. So what's the most important thing for the hobby right now and, and certainly in reporting about the hobby? Because it seems that there's so many fractures to it. The high end, the average collector, there's there's economic pressures. I think that we're going to face a reality of, of folks who can't afford to collect on a certain level. What's your crystal ball say? I don't know that I have a real clarity on the future, but people have a lot of choices and I think there's been an overemphasis on the investment side. Certainly, everybody likes to think that when they're buying coins, that they, they have a store of value in their coins. But I think there needs to be some attention paid to collecting what you like and the reasons you collect, not only for investment. That's fine. But the simple pleasure of collecting and learning about history, learning about different things... The whole joy of learning and the joy of putting together a collection, I think we need to really emphasize that much more than what has been emphasized in the last decade. To me, one of the pleasures and one of the things that kept me uh, so focused within Coin World, there was never a day, never a week, that I didn't learn something. I love that part of working in numismatics because to me the idea of researching and finding something new that I could share with people going back to a historical aspect of something and finding something new something to write about something for people to learn about is exciting and I, I think just the fun of learning and becoming fulfilled through a collection and a hobby we really need to emphasize that a lot in my one year of experience at CoinWorld, I share your exact experience of learning something new every week, you know, and I found that to be tremendously rewarding and valuable. I, so. I would echo those sentiments. And uh, that's one of the great things about the hobby, the ability to learn. We hope that listeners have learned a little bit more about Beth Deicher and CoinWorld and the hobby writ large. Thank you for joining us today. It's been our pleasure to have you here. Thank you. That was our interview with Beth Deicher, longtime CoinWorld editor, and more recent times anti-counterfeiting efforts. She's doing all sorts of other things to stay in the hobby these days. If you haven't already, or if you're interested in, in sort of giving it another another go, do check out our uh, our anti-counterfeiting interview with her. She had a lot of really interesting things to say, and her perspective is uh, is very valuable as the hobby contends with. What is a pretty yeah, that you'll problem. find that interview was published uh, a, around September 15th or so, mid, mid-September. You'll find that interesting, and that sort of um, is the point at which we say 
Thank you for listening to earlier episodes. If you haven't already, please do that. Subscribe. We sure do appreciate you listening, sharing it with folks yeah. who might enjoy it, learn from it. Send us emails. We've we've gotten one uh, just today, giving us an idea for a future episode. So you never know what will yeah. develop from this conversation. I will quickly say, if you've emailed me and I haven't emailed you back or I haven't made reference to your message on the podcast, there are a couple of people who emailed me about medals that they found a while ago. It's not because I'm ignoring you. It's because when I transferred back to Massachusetts, my Amos Media account was linked to my personal email account, which is a, it's a Gmail account. You so mean it wasn't linked at the time me and now again, you don't have those emails? Yes, it wasn't linked at the time, so I don't have access to an archive of backlog messages. I only have messages that I've received basically after about November 15th, 20th. So if anyone has emailed me with, with, uh, with any uh, information, questions, things they wanted us to talk about, uh, email me again. I, I'm not ignoring you. I just don't have access to those messages anymore. So feel free to reach back out. I promise I'm not ignoring anyone. So, But also, if you haven't reached out at all, Feel absolutely free to reach out to us, as Jeff alluded to just then. Uh, feel free to reach out to us with feedback, um, suggestions, ideas for future episodes, or if you want us to, to talk about something you have a question about or anything like that. We're always happy to hear from listeners, and we'd really like to not only get to know you guys a little bit, but you know answer any questions you might have. So feel free to reach out and keep on listening. Absolutely. And, and until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders, available at Amos Advantage. These holders seal tightly to ensure the look and feel of a slab without the expense. With the versatile premier coin holders, you can mix and match your slabbed and unslabbed coins. These are sold in packages of three and are available in 40 different sizes. So head over to AmosAdvantage.com to check out the Coin World Premier Slab Coin Holders and all of the other coin collecting accessories available there. That's AmosAdvantage.com.